I'm Jeff Weiner, and welcome to episode 13 of the Small Business Millionaire Podcast. And in this episode, I have a conversation with angel and venture fund investor Matt Cohen. Matt started Ripple Ventures in 2018 and already has more than 10 successful investments under his belt. In this episode, we discuss how he got started in angel investing, what he's typically looking for in an entrepreneur and company, the overall success rate of startup businesses, what a unicorn looks like, and much more. If you're an early stage entrepreneur considering the next growth phase or how to approach an angel investor, then this episode is for you. And full disclosure, I'm a limited partner in Ripple Ventures Fund 2. Hi, it's Kate, and welcome to the Small Business Millionaire Podcast, where we teach you the secret small business strategies that today's most successful entrepreneurs use to build profitable and growing businesses. And then the magic formula for creating personal wealth beyond your wildest dreams. So get ready to take your business to the next level with your host, who built and sold his 50-employee business and number one selling book author, investor, and entrepreneur, Jeff Weiner. Why don't you, for the purposes of the podcast, why don't you explain, I clearly know who you are, but why don't you explain a bit of a background on who you are, where you've come from, and how you got to the point of running the uh, angel firm Ripple Ventures? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, so my personal background before getting into venture, I came from traditional finance, Wall Street. I worked for a Canadian bank, RBC, in Toronto and New York New York, on their merger and venture and hedge fund side of the business, what they call sales and trading, for over a decade. And um, I ended up in New York during the last crisis, working underneath uh, the crazy world of you know, hedge funds and merger arbitrage and event-driven trading. And it was a pretty crazy time during the 2008-2009 recession. Survived that, took a couple of years off my life, but I ended up coming back to Toronto in about 2012, still with RBC. And I ended up starting a tech company with a couple of friends of mine who had recently quit their jobs and were looking to start a business that ended up being in the Wi-Fi marketing and analytics space called Turnstile Solutions. So I wrote the first check it was my first angel check into a company that actually wasn't even formed yet. And that business was helping brick and mortar retailers trying to essentially take their dumb Wi-Fi pipes. You know, when you sign in for a guest Wi-Fi password at a Starbucks or a second cup, you would actually use some form of social authentication instead of uh, an actual password. And so we built that company up, uh, you know, ended up being around 40, 50 employees after several years. And that business ended up getting acquired by Yelp for about 20 million US, 30 million Canadian. And it was a really great uh, success story and a really good lesson for me from being a, an early angel founding investor to watching a company struggle to find any investors in the Canadian ecosystem. And that experience really led me to thinking about how to be a more hands-on operator first angel investor with companies at the early stage that weren't really appealing to the traditional institutional investors that you see in the Valley and in New York and Boston. Fast forward a couple of years, I ended up moving to Boston, working for a fintech company that was uh, sort of in the capital markets research space and helping them out as a director of enterprise sales. And while I was in Boston, I got exposed to all the cool ecosystem stuff happening out of Cambridge, Harvard, MIT. I ended up joining the Harvard Alumni Angels Group, MIT Alumni Angels, Launchpad Ventures. And I made about a dozen investments with the proceeds from the turnstile sale into about, you know, as I said, 12 companies as an angel investor. And I actually had some pretty decent success with that. 
And uh, some family offices and high net worth investors noticed what I was doing. So when I moved back to Toronto after living in Boston for a couple of years in 2018, I officially launched Ripple Ventures Fund One, which was a $10 million early stage venture fund that's going pretty well. And now we're on to our second fund. So did you actually run that company or were you involved in a management level in the first company? I think it was called uh, Turnstile. Was that it? Your first one in 2009, 10, 11, whatever it was. Did you run it or were you just an angel investor at the background? Yeah. So I would say more than an angel, but definitely not a full-time operator. There was no real business when I wrote the first check. It was really just an idea. Founder and CEO, Devin Wright, really thought about selling a system to engage fans with music bands through music venues as the initial concept. And then it ended up pivoting into the Wi-Fi connections through people coming in and signing into the Wi-Fi networks originally. So I wouldn't say I was just a pure angel investor. I would actually say I was pretty hands-on with helping get the company set up, finding some of their earliest employees, investors, partners, customers even. But I didn't take a founding title or a founding operating role, but I did have a pretty healthy ownership in the business and probably helped them through the tough parts of the early years when they were struggling to find any way to you know, survive. But and it Devin was all con- the CEO. And Devin continued on right until the end, until the business sold? Yeah. Devin was uh, paying himself pretty much the same salary that he did the day I met him and wearing the same pair of pants and shoes. But he ended up uh, yeah, seeing the company through to a successful exit and everyone moved down to, to San Francisco. And he's still working. Actually, now he's like the head of Yelp restaurants and marketplaces. And he has a pretty significant role at Yelp in San Francisco. So pretty yeah, amazing I, story. I know Devin actually through PeerScale or formerly Ace Tech. So, right. and I know he did very well with that. So congratulations on that venture. Thank you. So what are you typically looking for when, and and not necessarily the business, but what are you looking for from an entrepreneurial point of view? You may see a really awesome business idea, but it goes past the business idea and you've got to start to look at who is running it, who's behind that idea. What are you typically looking for? Yeah, I'd say, you know, business ideas are a dime a dozen, uh, especially these days when it's so easy and cheap to start a business, it really does come back down to the the problem they're solving. You know, if there's even a market there and the people really behind it, why they want to dedicate their life to solving this problem. If they're in it for a quick flip, that's not someone I want to be associated with because, you know, when shit hits the fan, they usually are the first one to get out of line. And so what we choose to look for when we're looking at founders is, you know, how did they come to solve this problem? Do they have domain expertise where they you know, staying up late at night, pounding their heads against the wall, realizing there's got to be a better way to solve this. And they ended up spending their own time to solve it themselves. Or did somebody just say to them, hey, I'm looking to start something. Do you want to just do it with me? Because I really don't like when that happens. I think it's more, you know, it's got to be more of a, a story behind why they want to dedicate the next 10 years of their lives to building a business like this. So that's where we usually start with. Matt, so I'm going to counter that and, and I'm going to suggest that the entrepreneur is probably more important than the idea itself. You can take a not so great idea and even something as simple as a service elevator repair business, put an awesome entrepreneur at the helm of that and they can build an empire. You could take the world's next amazing technology product, put a crappy entrepreneur in front of it and the business is doomed. So is it more important that you've got the idea down pat and the entrepreneur is married to the idea or you is it more important that the entrepreneur is married to the idea of success and understands how to run a business? Yeah. So let me clarify. It absolutely is not the idea. That's my point. I don't think the idea 
is the only thing that matters. In fact, I think it's the entrepreneur's decision on why they want to dedicate their life to solving that problem. The idea is mm -hmm. what I care most about. And the entrepreneurs, you know, hustle and grit to get people to see the world their way is way more important because yeah, you're right. You could have a great idea. And if the entrepreneur sucks, it's not going anywhere. And if so, you have a mediocre idea and the entrepreneur is fantastic, it could go pretty far. So let's clarify this a little bit further. So out of a hundred ideas that come to you, how many would you say you're blown away by? The entrepreneur seems to be awesome. They, they can totally run with this and they've got what it takes. Well, we know the numbers. We see about 2,500 companies a year. I'd say about 10% of them make it towards, you know, the next step of due diligence. And then another 10% of those end up making it for investment. So you're talking 250, make it into a, a you know, next step conversation. And then 25 of those make it into a potential investment conversation. So you're looking total at 1%. Exactly. So a lot of ideas out there. And you're, from your perspective, not a lot of really good entrepreneurs. Now, that's only because, let me clarify, though, we are a venture fund. And venture funds models are very different than an angel investor. An angel investor can invest in, you know, 10% of the ideas that come their way because they're only looking for sometimes two, three, four times returns. But a venture fund has to make 10 times or more for the math to make sense. So you have to put the different hats on to understand what makes sense as an investment versus portfolio venture investment. So to, to that end, how do you source your deals? Do they come to you? Or are you out there actively looking for these? Of course, we are always looking for deals. I'd say our best deals come from the ones that we outsource to look for. We look outbound. The ones we get inbound, you know, through email or through LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever it is, we don't tend to take those ones all the way. Uh, sometimes they do work, but very rarely. I mean, definitely, you know, I'd say one tenth of a percent. Those are the ones we look at. Founder friendly introductions are a great source because our founders that we've already backed, they know what we look for. They know what kind of, you know, hustle and grit we look for in the founder of friends that they have in their network. And they know our investment thesis and strategy because we had to explain it to them and go through the due diligence process with them. So those tend to work out pretty well. And then we have a pretty sophisticated data scraping model that we use, which I won't really get into the details of, but we do have a way to scrape for companies that have certain characteristics that um, appeal to what we're looking for uh, at the stage that we're investing. Uh, and we tend to find some pretty cool companies out of that who are not looking to raise capital. So it's really an outsourcing outbound model for us. And what would you consider a success from your fund's perspective? Is it two times, three times, 10 times, or is it a unicorn? So the traditional venture model for everyone out there listening who may not be aware of it is it's really, you know, 80-20, 90-10, 90 90% losers, 10% winners. But those 10% winners really make up the bulk of your return. So in venture, people typically target, you know, three to five times returns on the overall fund. So a $10 million fund, you know, should be uh, grossing 50 million in returns, 40 million in profit. And then the 40 million gets divided up 80, 20 between the, the investors and the, the general partner. For us, you know, with our hands-on approach to investing, where we're investing really early, but we're working alongside our companies every day, we're trying to flip that 80, 20 model on its head a bit, where we don't want to see, you know, 80% losers and only 20% winners. We actually want to see more like 60% winners and 40% you know, kind of break even, slightly lose, slightly win. Um, because we don't believe that companies should fail uh, at the early stage just because they don't get product market fit or anything like that. There's got to be some underlying value to the technology, to the to the team, 
to their customer base as is that somebody would want to buy that asset. And so what we say is we want 25% of our fund to be that 10x or higher. We want 50% of that fund to be in that three to five times return. And then we want the bottom 25% to be in that sort of zero to one category. So overall, we still aim for that 5x return on the fund, but it's more broken up evenly across, you know, a handful of companies because we're only investing in, say, 10 companies out of the, the first fund and maybe a similar amount in the second fund. So what does a unicorn look like? Well, I don't know. I've never seen one of you. <laughs> Definitely not, because I'm not in the line of business that you are. But uh, for real, in, in your line of work, what would a unicorn look like? Yeah, I mean, the the whole thing that people, I remember seeing the, the term unicorn come up when I was even down in New York on Wall Street. And I was like, what is this unicorn thing people keep talking about? And it was this, you know, mystic creature that people say only exists very rarely and, you know, in the books. And then all of a sudden you see a new unicorn every day in TechCrunch and on the front page of the news. And so I think the unicorn that people talk about today is any company that reaches over a billion dollars in valuation. But you need to clarify a few things when you see that billion dollar or more valuation. Number one, a lot of the rounds that are happening at the later stage series D, E, F, and G a lot of that money is not going into the company's treasury to fuel the business. A lot of that is secondary transactions, buying out earlier shareholders at that valuation of two, three, four, or 50 billion. Okay. So let's be clear that not the company's not really being valued at that. It's just the shares to be purchased are being valued at that. So yeah, I guess you could say the, the secondary market is trading at that valuation. But what I believe is a true unicorn is when a company has taken, you know, 25, 50, maybe a hundred million dollars and they've 10 X the value of the company. And now investors want to come in, buy shares in the business at a billion dollar valuation or more. And they are doing it where the, you know, LTV to CAC ratio is like 10 to one. Every dollar you put in, you get $10 out of the business. Those are true unicorns. They're businesses that have 99% gross margins. They are absolute machines with capital efficiency. And any money you put into it is going into the business, is going to spit out a 10x or more on the other side. Not 150 million is coming in from SoftBank and it's going out to buy early stage investors because the benefit doesn't go to the company. So can you clarify then, um, you've got an early stage investor, which you are. So you find a potential unicorn. It's going to be the next Uber, let's just say. And now you're an early stage investor. You've put in random number, a million dollars into this next Uber. Do you necessarily ride it out until a billion dollar valuation because you're an early stage investor? Or are you forced out at some point and those early stage investors don't see the true valuation up to a billion unicorn status? So it depends on, you know, uh, what kind of rights you get first off from the very beginning. So in all of our investments, we typically have pro rata rights, which means we have the ability to maintain our ownership in the company from our first investment all the way up until when we stop running out of money or continue to invest. That being said, I don't think anyone can sit here and say, I'm investing into an angel investment or an early stage company thinking this is going to be a unicorn. I mean, people who invested in Zoom thought the size of the market that they were going after was like one one hundredth of the size of the company is today. They never thought people were going to be using Zoom to teaching classes in school or gym classes or having weddings and you know funerals. So let's clarify that nobody really knows what the unicorn is going to be. That being said, though, if you do have a potential unicorn, like we believe we do have in our portfolio, 
you absolutely want to double down if you can and ride that thing out. But you have to be prudent depending on how early you are in your career to be able to say you held on for that. And if it doesn't work out, it could totally blow up your entire fund. So you have to think about portfolio construction, right? Do you have a couple early wins to justify the fact that you've returned money to investors? Because you know it's easy to take money from investors, but it's really hard to get it back to them. And so if you can demonstrate the ability to give money back to investors and then still hold on to those winners, that's a good strategy. But if you've held on to all these winners and you still haven't returned your original investors capital mm -hmm. early on, it's a pretty risky uh, bet you're taking that that's going to be the outcome you deserve. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you held on to WeWork all the way to the end and it was your only unicorn and you hadn't returned any money from your, all your other companies because they were failures, that's not really a good venture model for, for risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, that's true. So uh, flipping over to the whole idea of angel investing itself, I'm wondering if it's been glamorized to the point where you have too many investors entering the market looking for the next hit it out of the park company, coupled with too few excellent businesses and more importantly, entrepreneurs and people, which in effect is pushing up valuations to the point where it's difficult for an investor to make a decent return on their investment. I mean, look, we're in a you know zero interest rate environment. Everyone is paying whatever they can to get growth. You're seeing it happen in the public markets and it's obviously trickling into the private markets. I'd say we've seen you know signs of this in the last dot-com bubble. And I think, you know, there are some crazy valuations out there for businesses doing only a few million dollars in revenue and getting billion dollar unicorn valuations. That being said, there are a lot of differences in this time around, you know, capital efficiency is happening with businesses today, you're seeing companies turn into $50 million revenue recurring businesses growing, you know, multiple 100% year over year, and they've only taken a few million, you know, or maybe 10 million max to get to that revenue uh, run rate. That's really impressive, you know. So there is a lot to be said about those early stage capital efficient businesses that are growing that way. Not everyone is like that, and there's a lot of areas where there's a huge amount of inflation right now in, in sort of certain areas. But that doesn't mean that you cannot make money as an early stage angel investor investing in technology. I think we're still at the very early days of you know companies moving to more workflow automation tools. We're still seeing early days of people getting used to the cloud, putting everything in the cloud and trusting, you know, that stuff to not be on-prem anymore. And, you know, people have talked about $4 trillion moving from the, you know, traditional economy into the digital economy over the next decade. That's a massive amount of opportunity for people to be investing and supporting early stage founders who are looking to run capital efficient businesses and can see, you know, a company that they invest in at two, three, four million dollars end up with a 10 to 20 million dollar exit. I mean, that's a great outcome for everyone. And that doesn't mean it's not a success because it didn't turn into a unicorn. It just means that, you know, you have to be okay that you're investing $25,000 and you're going to lose it, you know, nine times out of 10. And the one time out of 10, it returns, you know, five to seven times. So, Let's take another look at what's going on in the marketplace. And, and we've got uh, COVID going on at the market, which is impacting and has been a major structural shift in how companies are doing business. So you sort of spoke to that transformational change, what's going on in the digital world, online, et cetera. How has COVID impacted your current funds and how is it changing your perspective on how you invest moving forward? Yeah. So first off, we're not working in an office anymore and neither are our portfolio companies. You know, just so the audience is aware, 
Ripple Ventures um, has a co-working space for our portfolio companies to work out of in downtown Toronto. It's about 5,000 square feet, 50 desks. Our companies worked alongside us every day. Unfortunately, since the beginning of COVID in March, we haven't been allowed back there and we probably will never be going back there because nobody wants to work side by side in a co-working space. However, I would say, you know, when we set out to invest in early stage B2B SaaS, enterprise SaaS companies, we always thought that there was a huge amount of inefficiencies in traditional you know, industries like construction, healthcare, corporate education, automation of anything that was happening in paper-based industries that still had not really taken hold. There were some early adopters and then there were some bit more mainstream adopters, but there was still a large percentage of businesses that were not willing or needing to adopt to digital transformation in their own workflows. And COVID has accelerated that. As you can see with everything in day-to-day life from not having to wait in line at the grocery store to check out, to not having to wait in line for picking up your you know, items at the pharmacy, to anything that you have typically gone from the offline physical world into online has just been accelerated three to five years. And, and so how invested- has that impacted your fund and, and the businesses inside there? Have they done well as a result? Because I know if you're, if you're holding on to a Zoom, it's done extremely well. If you're holding on to a firm that services the restaurant industry, for example, it's probably suffering in a major way. So how have you, what have you seen inside your fund in the last six months? Yeah. So I'd say it obviously depends on the industries you're investing in. We went out with a thesis that we were not investing in hospitality and, you know, transportation, you know, retail, POS systems, things like that. So we've been very fortunate to have companies that are invested in the traditional enterprise SaaS world that have benefited tremendously from COVID. And I hate to say, you know, to be able to benefit from anything that is a global pandemic, but I would say from a business standpoint, we have seen tremendous adoption in our investments for the software platforms that they are built for things like trucking in the in the construction space for a company like Tread, who's doing you know e-booking, e-transportation, and e-services for everything. Um, we've seen it a huge advantage in telemedicine in our investment in on-call health. We've seen you know forex uh, utilization in their platform usage since the onset of COVID. Uh, enterprise education has become more and more prevalent because no one's allowed to go in the office and have meetings. So now all the bosses are waiting at home saying, how can I make sure my staff is you know staying up to date on all the different protocols and things that we're working on internally with different projects and things like that? Developer tools, how can I make sure that all the communication lines are secure and they're happening efficiently with everyone working from home on their personal laptops? There's a huge amount of things happening with enterprise software solutions that people are now being forced to adopt in a COVID world. And that has been beneficial for us, for sure. So net net, you've done very well. Your firms that you're investing in have done well for the most part as a result of COVID and, and through yeah. the last six months. Yeah, that's fair to say. Good. Matt, I want to thank you uh, for your time. And if I can ask, where can people find you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can uh, check us out at rippleventures.com. You can uh, follow us on Twitter, Ripple Ventures. You can also follow our own podcast, Tank Talk Podcast, as well. You know, you can follow us uh, through our online, you know, social media platforms on LinkedIn and so on. Uh, so that's the best way to reach us. Or you can email me at matt at rippleventures.com directly. Perfect. Thank you, Matt, for your time. It was a pleasure to get to know you a little bit better and talk about your fund and uh, angel investing in general. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jeff. My pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Small Business Millionaire Podcast. 
you can download a free copy of Jeff's number one selling book, which sold over 50,000 copies, by visiting the kickassentrepreneur.com website. Now be sure to subscribe to the podcast and please take a moment to write a review for our podcast in the App Store. 